Father, I thank you that we have worshipped this morning. We're here under your care. We're here by the Spirit's call. We're here, Father, because this is where we desire to be, among your people, with your word and with the prayer and the, the encouragement of saints and with opportunities to worship, to fellowship. These are things, Father, that unite us as a body because the Spirit draws us into these things. But they are not the sum total of our experience, Father. We know that at the end of it all, we come into the fullness of Christ when we see him on the day that he brings us home or on the day that he returns for his church. And that all that we have done in this day will be preparation for a time of service into eternity. We ask, Father, that we would have eyes for eternity this morning. That our focus on the here and now and on the needs and cares and worries of our life would not overpower our hope and our expectation for what is to come. Let the word this morning, Father, remind us of that. Give us an eternal perspective. And... And build our hearts, Father, with even greater expectations for what is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of Joseph, chapter 40. Joseph, by his obedience and his godliness, has found his situation turning from bad to worse. Now, as we enter this chapter, the Lord is testing Joseph by leading him through a series of circumstances. And in each case, we've watched Joseph do the right thing in the midst of his circumstances But nonetheless, the sinful world that he is amongst heaps more misery upon him with each turn. He is persecuted for his righteousness. And we know the Lord is at work in these circumstances. We've covered this now on a couple of weeks. We've watched the Lord allowing the troubles that Joseph experiences to just pile up so that the Lord can create an opportunity for Joseph to develop his own testimony And his own ministry, if you will. This is a testimony before the world, in front of the unbelieving world, which is represented here by Egypt. But it's also a testimony before the family of Israel, specifically Jacob and his brothers. All of what we're watching and still in the middle of studying are happening, are things that are happening to Joseph because he was appointed by God to have the birthright within the sons of Jacob. Remember the earlier dreams we've looked at where Joseph was given this appointment by God, to become the patriarch of the family. And as such, he's going to receive a double inheritance, double portion of the inheritance as the birthright holder. We also noted, of course, that Judah has something coming as well. He's the seed promise holder. He'll be the one through whom the Messiah will come one day. But we've already seen how unrighteous Judah has been, right? And how that required that God rescue Judah from his own sin, from the risk of corrupting the seed line. Judah's story reveals that salvation, the promise of salvation that's made possible through the Messiah, will come through men, but it's made possible by the grace and the mercy of God. So if you remember the story of Judah, remember it is an example of God using men to bring forth salvation, but not because of their own merits or abilities, but despite them. But by grace, God is making this provision. So Judah had nothing of value to the process. He's simply the one who receives the grace of God in that respect. But if Judah is a story of how God does his work through sinful men, despite them, Joseph is the flip side of that story. Joseph, as a picture of Christ, is the story that teaches us how God will bring salvation to the world through a man who will be obedient. And that man, of course, is a picture of Christ. 
The man is righteous, he's obedient, he suffers for his righteousness, and yet he will pass every test that the world throws at him. In the end, by his obedience, he becomes elevated to a position of power and authority over the world and over Israel. In a microcosm, that's Joseph, but as it pictures Christ, you see the whole story of the gospel in that. So Judah's story is the story of how sinful men are a means to an end for God, but not because of our own merits or contributions. Really, despite us, God will still make the plan work. While Joseph is the other side, the side of how one obedient man can reverse the sin of one fallen man, that being Adam. That's the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph and his picturing of Christ, one picturing the other. And through that picture, you come to realize why Joseph is called to suffer in these ways is to help set the stage for us to understand why is Joseph going through so much suffering? He has been appointed to bring about this picture through his life, through his life experiences of what it means to serve God, to have been the man Christ that Joseph pictures. So today we're going to cover the final verses of chapter 39, which we have not yet addressed, and then move into chapter 40 and finish that chapter today. Joseph has been accused of rape, you remember. He's been accused of sexual assault, I guess, by Potiphar's wife. And as a result, Potiphar imprisoned him last week. He had great success as a slave, but now he's starting over in prison. And he's moved into an even more challenging set of circumstances. We'll start in verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph. And extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So even as Joseph's situation deteriorates, you hear again the Lord continuing to give grace to Joseph. Once again, I want you to note the way Scripture melds two things Joseph's negative circumstances with a testimony of God's favor and kindness. Those two things are not in conflict, though we might think they would be. The measure of God's goodness or kindness is not whether our life is easy or carefree or without suffering. Joseph's descent into prison didn't mean God was displeased with him. It didn't mean Joseph had done anything wrong. And I should add, it's not unfair, though we might be tempted to declare it so if we were in the middle of those circumstances. On the contrary, the Lord, we are told, was with Joseph. He was extending kindness to him. He was giving him favor. The word favor in Hebrew, it's chen. It's literally the word for grace. God is showing grace to Joseph in these circumstances. But look, grace comes in the context of prison, not in the context of freedom. So given the option of a trial-free, carefree life, absent God's grace, or a trial-filled, persecuted life that is accompanied by God's grace, which of the two do you think you should seek for? The answer is easy. It's the latter. You always choose grace. In this case, God's grace came in the form of a jailer who took notice of Joseph's superior leadership qualities, qualities God himself had granted to Joseph. And like as has happened in Potiphar's house earlier, and actually even before that, in Joseph's family situation, 
These innate qualities give Joseph the opportunity to rise to a position of power and authority. The jailer puts everything under Joseph's charge, even all the other prisoners now, answer to Joseph. Well, that's clearly a pattern between what he did with Jacob and what he found in Potiphar's home and now with the prisoners. He has this tendency, we see, to be elevated into positions that make his life a little easier despite his circumstances. And we know this is from God. We're told this is favor from God. This is the outcome of that grace I just talked about a minute ago. God has determined Joseph will lead people. That's Joseph's call. We talk about spiritual gifts within the body of Christ because that's an, a facet of what it means to be in the new covenant. We receive gifts from the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Well, in this day and age, men received grace as well, and they received calls or, or commissions on their life at times. And here you see clearly that no matter where Joseph lands, this grace of God becomes evident once again. Joseph rises to a level of authority. That's his call. That's his mission. That's his purpose. Lead. And at this point in the story, you begin to see a fascinating parallel to Jesus's life. It just begins to emerge. It's going to take us a while to see it all the way through. But it's this picture of Christ. Let us set, let's set the stage for it here and we'll see more of it later. Joseph's time in prison is easily the low point in his life. Wouldn't you agree? If you know the way the story goes from here, then you would understand there's really no further descent. He begins now to come up from the depths of his situation. So it represents the greatest extent of his testing and of his trial. And in a sense, it's the beginning of the end of his testing because of what will come next. So from this point forward, Joseph begins to increase in stature and increase in power. Now, if we draw a parallel to Jesus's life and to Jesus's ministry, what parallel would we draw? Well, we could draw a parallel to the time that Jesus spent on the cross. And from there, his descent into hell as the scriptures testify, because those moments represent the low point in Jesus's life as well. And in his ministry, it is the time of his greatest test and trial and the possibility for Christ to be exalted as a result of his obedience from the point of the cross and the grave. He moves from there to resurrection, from resurrection to ascension, to the right hand of the father and soon to be king of a kingdom on earth. So if we look back at the, the whole plan of God with respect to Christ, it's easy to see that the cross and the grave are the low points. Just as now in Joseph's story, this time in prison represents his low point. So as we move forward from this point in the chapter or this end of this chapter and into chapter 40, we want to keep looking for more of this parallel to develop. And let's see what we find and can connect between Joseph's time in prison and Jesus's time on the cross and in the grave. And there are some interesting connections. So let's turn into chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. Well, then it came about after these things. The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were confined for some time. So Joseph gets some company in prison. The cupbearer and the baker of the Pharaoh, we're told, are thrown into prison for what we will soon see is a capital offense. These officials of the court, they share some of the same features as Potiphar did, who was another official of the court. In fact, here again, the word official 
in Hebrew is the word for eunuch. So these two men were eunuchs as well for the same reasons that Potiphar was. So what do these two guys do to anger Pharaoh so much? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but we can make an educated guess based on what they do for a living. The cupbearer and the baker, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, were positions that directly served Pharaoh. And a cupbearer, he wasn't just responsible for literally holding the guy's cup. That's the minimal part of it. In reality, you could think of him like secret service. He's the Pharaoh's chief bodyguard, effectively. He was responsible for ensuring that the Pharaoh's entire food chain was safe. He would oversee the food bought in the market. He would inspect all food brought into the palace. He was responsible for ensuring that all the food that was prepared in the kitchen was safe. And to ensure that it was all safe, in other words, to ensure that no one tried to poison the Pharaoh, the cupbearer was required to sample all the food before the Pharaoh ate it. So in that way, the cupbearer always had a strong incentive to ensure that the food was poison-free. And he got his title from the role of sampling the drink that was given to Pharaoh in a cup. So that was the last step of the chain of progress for him. He had already been working to make the food safe for much before that. But at the very end of that chain, there was the moment when the Pharaoh would drink from a cup. And he was the one responsible to ensure that nothing in that chain was ever uh, compromised. Now, the baker had a similar role in the preparation of the food in the kitchen. He shared responsibility for ensuring that the food that was prepared was safe in the kitchen. So between these two men, the Pharaoh's protection from his enemies was their highest duty. So since these two men are thrown in the prison at the same time and given their responsibility for Pharaoh's bread and drink, then perhaps Pharaoh had reason to suspect that one of them was trying to kill him or allow someone to kill him. And remember, Pharaoh is not an Egyptian. Remember, he's not a Hamite. He's a Hicksaw. He's one of those Semite people who had come in and conquered the Egyptians. So he must have feared for his safety on a regular basis from the native Hamite peoples. Since there was some doubt about who might have actually been guilty, he throws them both in prison, waits to figure it out later. So these two men are now in prison waiting to find out if one of them or both of them is going to ultimately be found guilty. And the crime that they're accused of would lead to the death penalty. So they're really worried for their very lives. The jail that they're placed in, we're told, is the same one as Joseph, of course. It is overseen by the captain of the guard. Well, who's the captain of the guard? Potiphar. This is Potiphar's jail, which is attached to his house. We now have an even better understanding of how generous Potiphar had been to Joseph. He threw Joseph in his own jail. And then he's the one who put Joseph over all of the other prisoners. So these court officials now are in this special jail set, about, set aside for court officials. It's a very privileged place to be. It's not with the typical riffraff that would be in a prison. This is sort of a white-collar prison, if you will. So the Lord is evidently still protecting Joseph, even though Joseph was sent to prison. He's not in as bad a situation as he could have been. Now, in verse 4, we're told Joseph spent some time in this prison. The Hebrew word for some is yom, which is the word for day, which we know in this case isn't literal. They're not just spending one 24-hour period in the prison. They were in there for some time. Some, when, when you see the word yom used in this kind of a context, it takes on a different meaning, a secondary meaning. The word would mean more of age or period in this case. So, in other words, it's an extended period of time. 
You're later going to learn that Joseph will leave prison and be elevated by Pharaoh to a position of honor when Joseph reaches the age of 30. Well, think back to what we know already. Joseph left Egypt when he was 17. And that means that he was in Potiphar's house and in this jail for a combined total of 13 years. 13 years, based on the opening verses of chapter 41, when we get there, we're going to see that Joseph must have been in jail for at least two of those 13 years and probably longer. You know, we've already understood that bad things can happen to good people because God chooses to work through tests and work through trials. But are you prepared to accept how long your trial may last? You remember Noah? He was called to suffer for 100 years. In the course of building an ark. And the suffering wasn't merely the labor. He was mocked and mistreated by the people around him throughout that whole process because none of them could understand why in the world he was doing what he was doing. And to say nothing of the 14 months he lived in the thing with all the animals. Talk about a prison. And what about Daniel? You remember Daniel, the story of Daniel? Daniel had to suffer 70 years in captivity in Babylon and not for his own sake necessarily. And to say nothing about his experience in the lion's den. What about Joseph? His circumstances require that he spend a total of 13 years either as a slave or as a prisoner in a jail. And have to remember, in the midst of all that, you don't know it's only 13 years. You don't know that it's going to get solved next year or tomorrow. You have no concept of how long you're going to be in that situation. And you can believe that as he stretched into his 13th year, there was a part of him that wondered, would he ever get out of prison? Would he ever not be a slave in Egypt? We read in just this two chapters of Genesis about his time in Potiphar's house and his time in the prison. By the time we get to chapter 41, he's on his way out. Two chapters. You read that in about 15 minutes. It took 13 years for that to happen. That's almost as long as we've been studying Genesis. (laughs) So why do you have to suffer for so long? The writer of Psalms tells us, In Psalm 105, you see a story of the recounting of of Israel's history, and particularly this time of Joseph. And in verse 17, we pick up at the point where the psalmist starts to talk about the years Joseph spent in Egypt. In verse 17, we hear the psalmist write this. The Lord sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that the Lord's word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. According to the psalmist, Joseph endured all that he endured so that through him the Lord might teach Joseph's elders wisdom. Who do you think his elders were? The elders here is a reference to his father and his brothers. He needed 13 years in these circumstances to be able to fulfill God's purpose, which was that he would be able to eventually reach a position of power where he could teach his elders wisdom. Now, I want you to consider that when Joseph arrived in Egypt, he didn't even know the language, we can safely assume. He didn't know how to speak in the language of the Egyptians, probably. He didn't know the customs of this strange land. He didn't understand Egyptian law. He didn't understand Egyptian
traditions. He had no one he knew in the culture, certainly. He didn't have any reputation there. But the psalmist said Joseph was appointed to become Lord over the house of Pharaoh so that he could then rule from a position of power where he could teach a lesson to people who wouldn't have listened to him if he hadn't had that power. Makes sense. But think how you get to that position. How do you take Joseph, a 17 year old boy in Canaan, living in Canaan, and bring him to the point where he is in charge of the most powerful nation on earth? Does that happen overnight? I mean, God's capable of doing anything. We know that. But in practical terms, how can he get them there? How can he make that happen? Well, God had to execute this purpose in a certain way. If Joseph's going to do what Joseph is appointed to do, he has to spend years learning Egypt inside and out. He has to demonstrate his leadership qualities. He has to show himself to be worthy of the Pharaoh's trust. He has to just get into a position where the Pharaoh might even know he exists. You don't do that overnight. The Lord had to put Joseph in the house of a servant of Pharaoh, Potiphar. And in that place, he learned the language. He learned the etiquette of royal society in Egypt. He learns the names and the functions of court officials. He becomes familiar with law. He begins to know the custom. He becomes savvy about Egypt. And then he goes to prison. And not just any prison, he goes to the prison that is assigned for the king's prisoners. So that as he comes into contact with more court officials, and one of those officials becomes freed from the prison and goes back into the court of the pharaoh, he now has an inroad, a friend, someone who can make the connection between him and pharaoh. Folks, that doesn't happen overnight. We can see it now, looking back on the story, it all makes perfect sense to us when we watch it from afar. But will you be able to see it when it's you that God is working with? Will you be in a position to understand that it might take you five years of suffering in a low-paid job? Or it might take you ten years to have a rough patch in your marriage. Or it may take twenty years of a physical illness. So that at the end of that process, what God accomplished in you through the learning, through the endurance, through the testing of your faith, was something great. So that he had a chance to put it to use in that future day. The problem is, we don't want to wait 13 years. We don't want to wait one year. We have a problem. We pray for a result. We expect an immediate answer. And if we don't, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with God? Why do I have to suffer this way? It's not wrong to feel that way. But it is wrong to stay in that mindset. I'm not saying Joseph didn't suffer. I'm certainly not saying he didn't lament his circumstances. Probably every day he experienced them. But the testimony of Scripture is he was on a path of preparation that was leading to serving a purpose in God's plan. We're no different. We're no different in that sense. Then in verse 5, Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, Both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came into them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house. Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we've had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. After some time in the prison, Joseph comes upon these guys and he notices they look sad. Only someone like Joseph 
could look upon two men who've been sent to prison for the death penalty and ask them, why are you so sad, guys? <laughs> Having a bad day? Have you looked around, Joseph? Look. No. But no, there was something here. That's what's interesting. Joseph was picking up on a difference. Evidently, he knew these two men well enough to know that there was something different that day. And there was. They had had a dream. And these dreams troubled them so much so that they knew they needed to figure out what the dream meant. And since they were in prison, they had no access to the Pharaoh's official dream interpreters. And yes, there were such men. There were people in employment to the king who were supposedly able to interpret dreams and provide their spiritual meaning. We see this earlier in the book of Exodus when you see Moses come into Egypt and talk to the Pharaoh. And as he begins to perform miracles, Pharaoh calls for his sorcerers, for his men who practice the black arts. And he asks them to come and repeat the miracles that Moses did. And to a certain degree, they could do that because they were working with the enemy's power, with satanic power. This is similar to what you see happening with Daniel, by the way. Daniel, when he was in in the employment of Nebuchadnezzar, that king also had men who could interpret dreams with the same black art powers. But these men, in the case now of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker, they feel helpless because none of those men are nearby. They're stuck in a prison. They can't get to the interpreters and they don't know where to go to get their answer. Or so they think. Now, Joseph tells them, Well, you have no reason to be sad because spiritual messages come from the Lord. And so it does not depend on certain men to answer these questions. It simply requires that the Lord grant the spiritual insight to whomever he wishes so that then that man can serve him in some form of ministry, or in this case, in interpreting dreams. Folks, that truth is powerful. It's powerful then. It's powerful now. Spiritual truth, godly counsel. Those are not the privileges of a certain few men. God gives to those he chooses spiritual gifts, a wide range of spiritual gifts. Everything that is of spiritual value in the body of Christ is coming from a spiritual source that God gave us, not by our own natural abilities. All God's children have access to the same spirit, and so we don't depend on certain men in order to hear from God or to know from God's spiritual truth. Now, there is a flip side to that, though. While it's true we don't go through one man or some group of men to find God or to hear from God, it is true, Scripture tells us, that God equips his children in different ways, with different spiritual gifts, so that the body has a diversity of spiritual gifts. So if the Lord is giving us as a body certain people gifted in certain ways, for example, teachers, prayer warriors, people who are gifted in healing or service or whatever then it only makes sense that we avail ourselves of those gifts wherever they are in the body. So what we're saying is, while no one has to go through another person to find out spiritual truth or to get to God, we do have giftings that we should take full advantage of when they exist in the body. If you have a choice to listen to teaching from someone who is gifted versus someone who's not, choose the gifted person as often as you can. It's the way the body is supposed to work. In Joseph's case, he's gifted, we know, to lead. But he's also gifted, now we find, to interpret dreams. That's one of the ways God is using him. In all the Bible, there's only two men that we know of who are gifted specifically to interpret dreams. Joseph and Daniel. And they share some interesting similarities. Both interpreted while captive in a foreign land. Both served foreign monarchs who worshipped pagan gods. Both interpreted dreams that were given by God to these monarchs, and yet no one else could interpret 
Both speak in bold ways to the king, sharing the interpretation without fear, even though it wasn't necessarily all good news. And then both were elevated into positions of authority by that king in response to their interpretations. Clearly, the Lord is working in these dreams to bring Joseph to that better place that we know he is headed toward. Verse 9 through 15. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Well, then Joseph said to him, Well, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. It begins with the first man relating his dream, the cupbearer. And of course, as you see, it's about a vine, and there's three branches, and there's grapes, and so on. And at the end of it all, he's putting the cup of Pharaoh back in the Pharaoh's hand. And so Joseph says, this is good news. Three means three days, and in three days, you'll be back in your former position. Now, at that point, Joseph sees an opportunity for himself, doesn't he? He knows that this is a positive result. He knows that the man is assured to go back into Pharaoh's service. And once he reaches that place, he'll be in a position to influence Pharaoh concerning Joseph. That only makes sense. So Joseph says, can you give me a little help here when you get out? Can you, can you help a little? Tell him about me. Tell him I don't deserve to be here. But do you notice how he describes himself? He says, let him know I'm from the land of the Hebrews. No, that's an interesting statement for two reasons. It's a statement of faith. But it's also a statement of political savvy. Here's where you see those 13 years starting to play out and and help himself. Well, what do I mean by a statement of faith? Well, in this day, the land where he is from is not known as the land of the Hebrews. It's Canaan. It's the land of the Canaanites. The only reason you would call it the land of the Hebrews is if you believed in the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that one day it will be their land. But it's like me saying... This city one day is going to be my property in the kingdom. So I'm going to call this Steveville. You call it Austin, but I know it is Steveville. Trust me, one day this is all going to be mine. I mean, I'd have to have heard a word from the Lord in order to have that faith. I understand. I'm just making a silly example. But that's essentially essentially what Joseph just said. I'm from the land of the Hebrews. Land of the Hebrews? Isn't that Canaanites? Yes. But he's demonstrating his faith here. But it's also a politically savvy statement. What do I mean? Well, remember the Pharaoh? He's a Hicksaw. Who are the Hicksaws? Well, they're Semites. Who are Hebrews? Semites. What he's saying is, I'm one of you. I'm not one of these Hamites. I'm like you, and I don't deserve to be here. Would you remember me, please? Would you take an interest in my case? Here you have a complimentary lesson to our earlier lesson on how we have to accept trials and accept suffering at times as a part of how God works in our life. Here's a complimentary lesson. This is another piece to the puzzle. Let's assume for a moment Joseph completely understood that God was working in his circumstances for some greater good. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume he fully understood this was a necessary period of testing. I'm not sure he did, 
But let's assume he did. Why does he work so hard to get out then? Just because we experience trial and testing doesn't mean we have to be passive in the face of those circumstances. We don't have to act like that simply because we're enduring tests and trials. Obedience during a trial does not require that we abandon all hope for rescue. On the contrary, we can work in appropriate ways to remove ourselves from where we are, to improve on our circumstances. And here you see that God has given Joseph certain talents, certain abilities. He's given him a brain. He's given him 13 years of experience in this culture. And Joseph is just using all of that right here and now in a hope that he can rescue himself from these circumstances. Now, at the end of the day, if he gets out of prison, who do we credit with that outcome? Not Joseph, God. But when Joseph has the means to make that possible, then it only makes sense he would take advantage of those means. In Potiphar's house, he did that. He worked hard. He showed his trustworthiness. It improved his circumstances. The result was a better situation as a slave. In prison, he did the same thing. He gained the same benefit. And now he sees a chance to win his freedom. And so he's trying to make the most of it. What does he do to do that? He relies on the gifts God gave him. He relies on the knowledge that he's acquired through the process that he's served God in these 13 years. And at the end of it all, he waits to see what God will do. We can't do any better than that. Don't forget Joseph's example in the midst of your own trial, of your own personal trial of faith. And by that I mean, number one, know that God is working in your circumstances. Don't ever forget that. You're not alone. Number two, trust that God has a good purpose in it and be looking for that good purpose. Three, continue to obey, continue to serve diligently in whatever circumstances you find yourself in and do it without discouragement. Fourth, use every God-given talent and gift and brain cell that you have to get yourself out of that test and out of that trial. And at the end of it all, pray that God will make the most of your efforts. With time waning, we will complete the chapter next week and go into chapter 41, but I hope you see something you can use in the week to come in emulating Joseph. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, help us to see our circumstances the way you do. Help us to understand that trials are for our good, that they can lead to something better in the way they mature us. Help us to have a perspective, Father, that does not become discouraged by trial, but understands that it is serving a better purpose. But also, Father, do not let us become passive. Don't let us give up on where we may may be able to improve on our circumstances. Help us to know, Father, that by the struggle of the baby coming out of the womb, the baby is made uh, given better opportunity to succeed in what comes next in life. And likewise, Father, by our struggle to endure and persevere and to rise above our circumstances, we will become stronger. And I pray that you would give us the the hope and the courage to think like that. Let us continue in our study as as we ask every week, Father, so that we might be prepared in all the works that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.